0: Hey, everyone, welcome to the question show your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are across my channel. If a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. Now, once again, I'm recording this show on Monday, June seventh, 2021. So if anything really interesting happens over the course of the week from when I did the show to when you watch this episode, I, I just I didn't see it coming, and I'm sorry, and uh, we'll have to deal with the fallout uh, on the next week. But if you want to join the show live, which is where sort of the vast majority of the questions come in, I record these shows every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time on my YouTube channel, and you should totally join. And uh, in fact, the real show is about two to three times longer than the one that you're watching, although there are no cool graphics. So uh, you're gonna have to decide which way you wanna go with that. All right, let's get into the questions diversified input. Hey, Fraser, what is space dust? Where does it come from? I always talk about space dust here on the channel and how dust is you know, the answer is that it's always dust how we are we perceiving primordial gravitational waves? Nope, it's space dust. Are we measuring ourselves at the center of the universe? Nope, just dust. Uh, At every time space dust pokes up its head and is the cause of Uh, so many issues for astronomers. And in many cases, if it's, you know, if it's interesting, it's probably dust. But what is it? And so I actually didn't know. Before I took this question on and started to do a bit more research, I just sort of like assumed it's like bits of dirt in space. But like, how do you get bits of dirt in space? What's making dirt if the universe all started with hydrogen and helium? How do we end up with dust? So there's a bunch of sources, uh, many different sources of dust. So here in the solar system, for example, we have the dust that's left over from the formation of the solar system. And that's sort of raining down on the Earth all the time. In fact, many tons of it are being added to the Earth every day. And so that is like just little pieces of debris from asteroids that crashed into each other. You've got the zodiacal dust, which we now know is actually the dust coming off of Mars, that's being blown off into the solar system. You've got bits of material that's coming off of comets and asteroids as they're getting too close to the sun and blowing that material out. So you've got that. But then you've got the interstellar dust, you've got these incredible dark nebulae that you can see that are blocked, you've got all of the dust lanes that are caused down at the center of the Milky Way. And where are those coming from? And there's two main sources of dust. The one source is when you've got stars that are more massive than the sun, that as they reach the end of their life, they turn into red giant stars. And in the core of the red giant, you've got all these processes of creating fusion that are fusing heavier and heavier elements inside the star, and eventually getting to the point where you've got small pieces of the precursors of dust starting to form inside the star, and they make their way through the star. And then they're blasted out by these really powerful solar winds that are coming out of these stars. So things like Betelgeuse are releasing large amounts of this dust out into space, and it's being formed inside the star, making its way out and then blasting out into the universe. And then the other source, and this has only recently been figured out in the last couple of years, is when a really big star like a supernova goes off as a supernova, like a really massive star, the star detonates and you've got all of the gas that this supernova had released into space in the millennia before it actually detonated as a supernova. And all of the material kind of coming out of the star crashes into all of this surrounding cocoon of gas that had already been released, and it slows down and forms dust in this region as it's happening. And so then you're getting all of this material sort of the, you've got the original material blasted up by the star as the supernova. And then you've got the actual supernova event crashing into it. And you're getting dust forming at that point, and then it's sort of pushing outward. And that we know that this dust makes its way into star systems into clouds of hydrogen and helium and helps to collapse these down into star systems, and the dust seeds the heavier elements into the solar system, and then it gets recycled. And so when you think about, you know, that famous quote from Carl Sagan, that we're all made of stardust, and we are, that all of the heavier elements, the carbon, all of the silicon that's around us, all of the phosphorus and nitrogen and all these kinds of things, these were all formed, either in these giant stars as they were dying, or supernova detonations, which I guess is giant stars dying. Um, So it's kind of fascinating to think that all that stuff came from those sources. And it's everywhere across within the Milky Way. Great question. Peter Michaels, the Kardashev scale makes no sense to me why rank civilizations by the amount of energy they consume? The Kardashev scale uh, is was this scale that was developed by Soviet researcher, uh, a few decades ago, that said that as a civilization gains in its ability, it's going to be continuing to use more and more energy. And if you just take the amount of energy that that humanity has used over the history of our lifetime, for a million years however long human beings have been around, you can plot this energy curve that grows in an exponential fashion, it just goes up and up and up and up. And eventually you get to the point where the amount of energy that a civilization is going to use matches the total amount of sunlight that is falling on the planet. And this Kardashev said, well, that's going to be a type one civilization. At that point, the the civilization is using 100% of the energy that's falling on it. And then you can continue to plot that energy curve up. And you say, well, at some point, the civilization is going to be using all of the energy that's being released by the star. And that is a type two civilization. And then you keep plotting up the amount of energy you say, well, at some point, it's going to be using all of the energy that's used by all of the stars in the entire galaxy. And that was defined as a type three civilization. Now, why do that? It's not like it's not like using more and more energy is some kind of aspirational goal. And that's how we judge a good civilization from a bad civilization it's just how we recognize the existence of a civilization. Because in theory, a civilization that is using all of the energy from its star a type two civilization should be detectable by the fact that they will have enclosed their star in some kind of sphere or swarm. And it will be then absorbing that the visible light in various wavelengths, and then it's gonna be giving off infrared into space. And it's going to be that that infrared signal that's the thing that's detectable. Now, does that mean that they are the most um, metaphysically advanced civilization out there in the universe? No, they're they're horrible, gas star chugging monsters that are um, you know, they're gobbling up energy, and they've already destroyed all of the planets, and they're the worst. But we can detect them. So, um, you know, are they the, you know, obviously, it just, it's all about your definition of advanced. Um, Do they have the best technology? Who knows? But what we do know is we can, we should be able to see them. And that's it. And so if you want to, like, come up with other measurements, you know, the ones that have achieved a higher state of balance with the ecological system that they find themselves within. It's a really interesting idea. They would just be really tricky to spot, because they, they just look like a, a terrestrial planet, and it's really hard to find them. So uh, that's only reason that that scale exists, not like it's some kind of aspirational goal for the future of humanity like, like, let's not rest until we've enclosed every star in the Milky Way in a Dyson sphere. Uh, No, it's just just we would note if there was someone had already done that. Pear Boo. Could life on Earth be von Neumann probes? Perhaps DNA based life is just a very fancy self replicating robot system with an extremely clever improving method evolution. We could have been seeded into the earth billions of years ago. And through humanity, we are reaching our singularity, meaning that complex behavior, learning and exploration capacity are accelerating further and further. Sure, uh, one perfectly legitimate explanation for the source of life here on Earth is that it was seeded a long time ago, uh, by some alien civilization, either direct, you know, intentionally, or unintentionally through panspermia, that at some point life that formed in some other location around the Milky Way found its way into the solar system and was able to take hold and and go. And when you look at say, uh, the Hawaiian Islands, that there's all kinds of life on the Hawaiian Islands, and scientists there are able to trace back pretty much each one of those life forms. To the moment, like how long ago that it arrived, and they weren't coming very quickly. Like every few thousand years, a new species would arrive on Hawaii. Like, oh, now we've got frogs, and now we've got this kind of grass, now we've got this sort of bird. Um, it's it's kind of an interesting idea. So you could absolutely imagine that at some point, an alien civilization has built giant robot factories that produce DNA seeding capacity, they send these robot probes to various worlds, they, they, they somehow begin the process of seeding the life on that planet. But the one thing that we do know is that all life on Earth is related. And so you know, when you think about the, uh, the alien movie, it's Prometheus, anyway, where you've got this life form that dies on Earth, and then you get various life forms after that that's fine, as long as it can all trace a common ancestor back to a single event. And so us and fungi and plants and cyanobacteria and archaea, we all share a common ancestor. And so that would be the method. So if you do sort of decide that, that's great. But then it just pushes the question back. You're like, okay, fine. So then where did life? How did life form? If life on Earth was delivered by some alien robot system, then where did the life form to build the robots. And then if they were seeded by life, then where did the life form to build those alien robots? And at some point, there had to be some kind of abiogenesis, some moment where you had non life and then you had life in the entire Milky Way. But it's a perfectly consistent way to think about how life came to the earth. Boston sucks. Hey Fraser, I have an eight inch Dobsonian and I was wondering if there are any objects that are visible every night from Vancouver. I can't always wait for the full moon every month. Thanks. Wait, you want to wait for the full moon, the full moon is the enemy. You want to avoid the full moon, you want to use the rest of the month, uh, except for when there's a full moon, like when the full moon is out, you put your telescope away. Um, But every other phase of the moon, for example, uh, is wonderful. The thin sliver moons, the quarter moons, half moons, waning waxing. Uh, that's when you get to see different craters at different parts of the moon. And so the full moon is the worst. So don't look at the moon when, when it's full. Moon. In fact, don't do anything with your telescope. But what else can you see? Well, the night sky is changing all the time. And so, uh, different times of the year have different planets that are visible. Sometimes you're going to have Venus, you're going to have Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, um, Mercury, depending if you have a view to the horizon. I'm not sure where you are in Vancouver. If you've got a more powerful telescope, you should be able to see Uranus, maybe even Neptune. Uh, you're going to have asteroids that are going to be shifting through the night sky. So, those are all fairly bright objects that you can see even in the city lights of a place like Vancouver. Now there are some other fainter objects that you can see as well. And again, these depend on the time of the year. So during the summer, you can see all the various summer constellations, you can see the the great globular cluster in Hercules, you can see some of the uh, open star clusters in say Perseus, you know, in the wintertime, you can see the Great Nebula in Orion, you can see stuff in the spring. So there are fairly bright objects, you see Pleiades. Um, but then if you actually want to go outside of the city, then you can get a lot more deep sky objects and an 80 inch Dobsonian is like the perfect machine for that. Uh, you once you learn the night sky, you can point the telescope at different objects and start to really see them. So highly recommend that. But no, you you're gonna have to find out just keep track of the locations of the planets and what time they're rising and where they are in the sky and be able to point and every now and then things get really great like Venus reaches its bright brightest point its closest point you can see well, it's always sort of the same you just see clouds but um, but Saturn especially uh, has points when it's closer to us than other times of the year. Same thing with Jupiter and its moons, and Mars, especially every two years gets closer and brighter. So you're gonna have to keep track of what's going on in the night sky. And, uh, and yeah, put that telescope away when the full moon's out. That's the time that you just leave it closed. cootie ExO. Why do people think that black holes lead to another universe? It sort of depends on who you ask. The answer is that we don't know what is on the other side of an event horizon of a black hole. What we do know is that when really massive stars much more massive than our sun die, they explode as a supernova and then all of the layers come crashing in and they implode at the center. And so you have all the mass that was once a chunk of the star is now this object that is so densely held together, that the escape velocity to leave the this object exceeds the speed of light. And so when you kind of imagine like what's the escape velocity to leave Earth, how, how hard would you have to be able to jump to be able to escape Earth forever? It's fast. But if the Earth was more massive, then the speed that you would have to jump off of the Earth to fly off into space would be more, maybe it would be 15 kilometers per second, if you were gonna, um, you know, even more massive, maybe it would be hundreds of kilometers per second, 1000s of kilometers per second, well, the speed you would have to jump to get off of a black hole is beyond 300,000 kilometers per second. And that's the speed of light. And so not even light can jump off of a black hole. So is that a portal to another universe, or is that just a really, really massive, dense planet-like thing that you could just fall into and get crushed onto? Uh, we don't know. You know, maybe a black hole tears open the fabric of the cosmos and leads this portal to another universe. Or maybe if you just jumped into a black hole, you would just go smack onto the black hole at a ludicrously fast speed and just be paste it out onto the surface of the black hole at one atom thick. So I don't recommend that you try just just wait for the scientists to figure out exactly what's going on before you plan your journey to a black hole. D three, 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 we seem to be seeing a lot of asteroids coming near Earth. Are we just getting better at finding them? Or is it something else? We are getting better at finding them. Um, for the longest time, asteroids were found by astronomers, professional and amateur astronomers who go out every night, they would take their telescope, they would look in the sky. And they would look for an object that they didn't recognize as part of some constellations, an additional star. And then they go out the next night and they'd look again and they'd be like, wait a minute, that star has moved. I wonder if that's an asteroid. And then they would trace its position and they'd start to figure this out. And then astronomers got access to, say, CCD cameras where they could go out and they could take a bunch of pictures and then they could flash the, the pictures one at a time and could see any little objects that are blinking back and forth. And that would tell you that you got some asteroids in the picture. And it was from this process that astronomers started to realize that we're actually in a bit of a shooting gallery that there are actually uh, 10s of 1000s of near Earth objects, which if they hit the Earth could cause a lot of damage. But in the last couple of years, we've got these automated sky surveys. And there are many of them things like the Catalina sky survey, um, where you've got these robotic telescopes that every single night are like clockwork observing different chunks of the sky, downloading all this data, computers are crunching through, and they're searching for the kinds of objects that are going to be in the sorts of orbits that are going to bring them really close to the Earth. But the problem is that we still have a few blind spots. Um, It's really, really difficult to see objects that are coming at us from the sun. And so especially from down here on Earth, you know, the sun makes half of our day 24 hours, difficult to see in. And so there are future plans to put telescopes out into space, that will do the same survey, these robotic things, robotic methodology of scanning the sky. And in fact, because they're going to be space telescopes, they're going to have the ability to, to resolve objects that are far dimmer. So if you think we're seeing a lot of close call asteroids now, just you wait until this next generation of space robot asteroid finders uh, comes online, it's going to be kind of terrifying when we realize what kind of a shooting gallery we're in. Like right now, astronomers know of about 30,000 near Earth objects. And over the coming decades, that number is going to balloon up as we learn about more and more of them. So stay tuned. More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons, Fred Menzella, Chris Copa Bianco, Ross Daniels, Andrew Harmsworth, Peter Zurker Philip Blanco, and the rest of our 825 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com universe today. Vidboy 4242. Wouldn't you think that if we can track tens of thousands of pieces of debris encircling our planet, that we might have noticed UFOs coming and going? Well, sure, you would think that astronomers who have as I just mentioned, powerful robotic telescopes that are scanning the sky every night searching for anything, which is moving through space, would find things that defy comprehension that are unable to explain by any of our current scientific methods. And so far, they have not that the people who focus their work on the skies have not turned up any of this kind of thing. And so what does that mean? Well, so the simple answer is that the aliens don't want to be seen. They've got alien technology, stealth drives, and the uh, and they know where our telescopes are pointed. And the only time that they're seen is, you know, when I don't know, they're flying really close to people with cell phone cameras, I don't know. So yeah, I mean, the, people who are into astronomy, obviously, we get asked all the time, you know, if you've ever seen a UFO, and no, I've I've never seen anything that I couldn't identify. And when somebody shows me something that they can not identify, I typically have a guess on what it is that I think that they're looking at. And then the stuff that even I would have no idea what it is, you've got people like uh, Mick West, who, spends a ton of time calculating the geometry and thinking about the kinds of camera systems and gear to be able to image various objects and what infrared camera systems are designed to look like. So as we build more powerful observatories, both here on land and in space, and are able to scan more of the sky, if there was something coming from space, hopefully, if there is anything out there, we will have a better chance of of spotting it, uh, unless it uses super advanced technology that we can't do, or that it doesn't exist. Jeff Sonderman, Fraser would a spaceship with a warp drive be able to travel within the event horizon of a black hole and back out again, what would be the implications? It really depends on how your warp drive works. So, you know, if you take Einstein's mathematics, and you put in faster than the speed of light, then in theory, you should be able to escape a black hole. But the problem is, is that in reality, a black hole tangles up space time so thoroughly, that if you were uh, flying your faster than light spaceship, in the event horizon of a black hole, all pathways still take you to the singularity. So it's not about traveling so fast, you can escape the black hole. The problem is that you're just you're traveling the lines of space into the black hole again, all roads lead to the singularity. But it really just depends on how your warp drive works. If your warp drive allows you to create some sort of bubble that allows you to ignore the bending and twisting of space time caused by the black hole itself, then maybe you could escape from a black hole, we're gonna have to wait till someone invents one and then we can find out what happens. but I I won't go first. Gregory Brown, with the recently announced missions to Venus, do you think that this will lead to other missions to try to penetrate deeper into the atmosphere of our gas giants? I mean, this is an interesting question, but I just wanted to use this as a chance to be super excited about the fact that NASA has announced two missions to Venus, you've got Veritas and you have got Da Vinci Plus. Veritas is going to orbit Venus and scan the surface of Venus at a much higher resolution. Like right now, we've got like 30 meter resolution at Venus while we've got sub meter resolution at Mars and yet Venus is way bigger uh, than Mars much more surface area. And there's these really fundamental questions like how did this runaway greenhouse effect happen on Venus? Why does Venus not seem to have tectonic plates? Is there active volcanism on Venus right now? what's it made out of what's the various minerals across so having a really high detailed scanning mission going to Venus is really, really exciting. Like the last one that went to Venus was Magellan back in the 80s. So we haven't had really high resolution scans of the surface of Venus and yet the technology has improved dramatically. Uh, da Vinci Plus is going to drop a probe into the atmosphere of Venus It's sort of a one way trip it's going to sample the atmosphere as it falls down through the atmosphere. That's exciting. I I would prefer something that's stuck around a little longer in the atmosphere of Venus, maybe a balloon or, or uh, airplane or something that could could sample at different levels, but maybe they'll have to wait for the for the future. So does that idea scale to other planets in the solar system? Well, we've already sent a probe into uh, Jupiter. When Galileo went it released a probe into the atmosphere of Jupiter and it it's how we know what the upper atmosphere of Jupiter is made of, with water ices and ammonia ices, and then it died, because it, you get down through the upper layers of the atmosphere, and then the density and pressure increase. And it's like hitting a brick wall, and the probe uh, was crushed. And at the end of its mission, Galileo followed its probe into Jupiter, and the same thing happened it. Cassini crashed into Saturn and didn't last long. And so the problem is, is that beyond the atmospheres of the of the gas giants, once you get down a little bit, the pressures and temperatures just get ridiculous. And so it's really hard to imagine any kind of probe that could stay in that environment and not just be destroyed. And you would need something that can float in pure hydrogen and helium. We've talked about this in the past, like there isn't much that you can use like here on Earth, if you have helium, helium is lighter than oxygen, and sort of less dense. And so if you can have a balloon with helium that floats around, same thing with hydrogen, well, what kind of balloon floats in hydrogen and helium, heated hydrogen and helium, so it'd be really tricky to have anything that could last any amount of time. And we, so we've seen the probes when you drop them into into the giant planets, they just they they don't last long. But I'm sure like, like an updated version of the Galileo probe would be useful and would tell us some new things, especially based on all the things we've learned about Jupiter, thanks to Juno. Uh, we should send one of these every time with the latest, you know, toughest hardware with the latest science and see if we can get as much new knowledge, but we're not going to get something that's gonna nicely float around inside Jupiter, or Saturn, swimming around in the hydrogen helium soup. Unfortunately, Kyle Hunt, what's the first resource that we will mine off the earth? I would say the first thing we're going to be needing is water. Um, That when you water is magic, Um, you could take water, you can use electricity, you can break it up into hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen can be fuel with oxygen. Um, You can use it obviously just for water for drinking for growing plants, you can use the oxygen for all kinds of things, you can use it in various industrial processes to mix with various metals. So if you've got water, you've got almost everything that you need, like obviously you need some more heavier elements, carbon, metals, things like that. But water takes you a long way. Uh, And it's going to be one of the most precious things in the inner solar system. And there aren't a lot of places that we can get water, you're going to be getting water from the moon from the permanently shadowed craters of the moon, you might be able to get water just from the rest of the lunar regolith or from various asteroids, If you just grind them up, there's going to be water inside, but not a lot. Uh, Most of the water is out beyond the frost line in the solar system. So out past the orbit of the asteroid belt out to the moons of Jupiter and places like that. And so the inner solar system is rich in metals and, and rock and things like that. And the outer solar system is rich in water. And so you can imagine there's in some vastly future solar system spanning civilization, there's going to be some kind of economy where the outer solar system is sending water to the inner solar system and the inners are sending uh, metals and the beltas are just caught in the middle as always, um, but obviously we've got plenty of water here on Earth. So we're not going to bring that water back to Earth. The main purpose is going to be using that water in situ. You're going to mine it where you need it. So if you've got you know some kind of uh, propellant storage on the Moon, you're going to be built right on top of one of these permanently shadowed lunar craters, you're going to be harvesting the water, you're going to be breaking it up, creating your rocket fuel, and then you're gonna be able to send stuff away. It doesn't make sense to send any of this stuff, you know, people are always like, when are we going to mine asteroids and bring it home, and we will never do that. Uh, It'll always be used in space as close as you can possibly mine it. Dennis Tyrant. When astronomers say the radius of the galaxy, do they refer to the radius of the disk? Or does it include some part of the halo? The galaxy, the Milky Way, all galaxies really have three different kinds of sizes. So the first one is just the stellar disk. And that's when you look at a picture of a galaxy and you see the spiral arms, that's the stellar disk. And so the stellar disk for the Milky Way is about 170 to 200,000 light years across. And then surrounding that is a disk of gas that surrounds hot gas essentially all of the gas that is blown out by all the star formation that's happening inside the galaxy and that's bigger and then surrounding that is the t- entire dark matter halo of the galaxy and usually like the dark matter is like a 10 to 1 amount of mass and so the dark matter is vastly bigger than what you can see in in the milky way or any other galaxy like I think the Milky Way's dark matter hail is about 650,000 light years across. And the one for Andromeda is even bigger. And kind of the weird thing is like, you know, we know that Andromeda is like, whatever one and a half million light years away from the Milky Way. And eventually in the far future, they're going to collide. Well, the reality is they're already starting to collide. Their dark matter halos are already starting to overlap. So, uh, you know, obviously, if you want to be pedantic, if a person says, like, how big is that galaxy? You're like, well, which part the dark matter halo, the stellar halo, the gas tell, it, you know, you, you're gonna need to be specific. Christopher Brown Floyd, would there be any benefit to stationing a telescope in the outer solar system or launching one on an escape trajectory from the solar system? I get this question a lot. And I used to give this really flippant answer which is just that space is really huge. And if you put a giant telescope far out in the solar system, uh It doesn't really make you closer to anything, but it takes you much farther away from the Earth, which is where we are. And so it's way harder to transmit data back to Earth, Uh, you've got to put all this fuel to be able to carry this telescope away. And when your telescope is out in the outer, outer solar system, you're not really closer to stars. And in fact, when you think about it, you know, your telescope is on the outside this side, and now all those stars are farther away than when they are from the Earth. But it turns out there is an advantage to having a telescope in the outer solar system. In fact, this was just discovered by NASA's New Horizons spacecraft. New Horizons, of course, is the spacecraft that went to visit Pluto and Eris. And one of the interesting just science experiments that they did while they were out there was they just took the camera on New Horizons, and they pointed it at some region of the sky and just were wondering, like, how good of a picture can we take now that we are farther away from the sun. And what they found was that in fact, there is light pollution that is in the inner solar system. Talked about that idea of dust in the inner solar system, there is debris that glows inside the inner solar system we're trapped right in the middle of it here on Earth. And so if you wanted the best possible telescope view, you would want to set your telescope outside of the inner solar system, way out beyond the Kuiper belt, where it is like, it's like the dark skies of the solar system itself. That said, you still have all those problems of making it really difficult to send your data home. And so if you're going to be trying to take really good pictures and send gigabytes, terabytes of data home, you probably want to make a slightly bigger telescope, but leave it close to Earth or maybe put it at the L2 Lagrange point as opposed to building a smaller telescope and with an enormous transmitter and taking it all the way out to the outer solar system. But, but I, I love the fact that the reality is more complicated than I had originally assumed. So uh, that's why I, I give a revision to my answer now. Jasmine Stonechild, what do you think Space Force will accomplish? Is it even beneficial? Space Force is not about having power armored space Marines loading up in their space battleships and flying off to battle aliens on the shoulder of Orion. Space Force is people down here on Earth in offices operating satellites that are observing the Earth. And so really, Space Force is all about using space assets to help people on Earth communicate, find their way and observe each other. Um, And eventually, they may be requiring defense of those satellites, but even that defense will be coming from Earth. And so Space Force is really people in offices, typing code to check the status of their satellite. Space Force. Um, it's not, uh, you know, again, people on the moon, etc. So uh, there is already an enormous amount of of military expenditure by many countries for their space assets. And so the purpose of Space Force uh, was to really bring together all of those disparate assets into one umbrella group, like you've got the Navy you've got the army, and now you've got Space Force, and they're managing all of these satellites that do all these tasks, some of which we are classified, and we don't even know what they do. So what will it accomplish? It'll do all the things it was already doing. It's just that there'll be one person in charge. And so if you know, instead of five different groups, planning, talking to SpaceX, launching their own satellites, there'll just be one. Is it beneficial? Well, I mean, We rely on satellites for communication for the GPS system, which was developed by the military, uh, for all kinds of things. So if someone blew up your satellites, would that be a bad thing? Yes. So defending those would be a good thing. So I think that in its current state, Space Force is fine. It's sort of already existed, just it wasn't in one group. Alright, those are all the questions this week. Super fun. Thank you everybody who both asked questions on the various YouTube videos, but also the people who join me live here on the Monday. It's super fun. Again, if you want to join, watch the show live. I do this every Monday at 5pm Pacific time uh, on YouTube. So you should come and join me. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you'll want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights and links you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com slash newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. Did you know that all of my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device go to universetoday.com slash audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators. And a special thanks, as always, to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.